And once again, Jack offered the seat. He could not get back to his work, wondering why this boy was so troubled. Jack had two kids, a boy of 15 and a girl of 12. He tried not to imagine his children ending up this way. But if they did, he would want an older caring person to help them. Once again, Jason refused the offer. He obviously just wanted to be left alone. Another half hour passed and finally Jason's weary feet convinced him to accept the seat. He was happy to finally be able to rest. He muttered a meek word of thanks and rested his head against the cool window. Although his head bobbed back and forth from the vibrations of the train, the cool feel of the window against his cheek was refreshing. Do you wanna talk? It looks like something's bugging you. Jack tried to recall some of the teenage jargon he heard around the house, but his mind came up empty. Jason continued to stare blankly out the window. If I wanna talk, I'll let you know. For the very first time, Jack made eye contact with this troubled young man. He had once heard that if you look into someone's eyes, you can see what's in their soul. What he, what he had seen in this boy's eyes was pure sadness. Just by looking at him, you could see he was lonely and lost. Jack tried a few more times to extract from Jason what was troubling him and how he could help. And finally, Jason relented. It all started when I was 15. Jason began to bear his soul as Jack sat back and listened carefully. I was the type of kid who was into electronics and was generally viewed as a recluse. My parents constantly encouraged me to get together with friends and they always would bother me. I would tell them to let me run my own life, but they kept sticking their noses into my business. Well, one of the advantages of being an, an electronics geek is the ability to create and invent different things. And that is precisely what I did. I created my very own invention and made a mint of it. I became a millionaire overnight. But then I was 17 years old. Sure enough, I became popular. My parents tried to warn me about the groupies who wanted to get close to me because I was now rich. But I had had enough of their advice. I told them once and for all they should stay out of my life. They pleaded with me and begged me. But the last time we spoke, I hung up on them, insisting they never call me again. By now, Jack was hanging on to every last word of Jason's tale of woe. He watched closely as Jason shifted uneasily in his seat. He felt Jason's parents' pain. Yet he sympathized with Jason as well. He wondered how much suffering this boy had endured. Money helped me find a wife and we got married immediately with neither of our parents present at the wedding. Nine months later, we had our first child. Life seemed to be perfect. There we were, a young couple living in a beautiful high rise Manhattan apartment with a precious little baby. Then one day, a shady character, one that in hindsight I should have stayed away from, offered me the chance of a lifetime, an investment that would allow me to retire. I invested the millions I had made and waited for a phone call that never came. The entire thing was a scam. Just like that, I was poor again. When my wife discovered what had happened, she left me and took our child. I was evicted from the apartment, suddenly had no friends to turn to. My entire world had crumbled. Less than two months earlier, I'd been sitting on the top of the world. And now I was penniless, homeless, 
and lonelier than I'd ever been. I scrounged around like a beggar, going from restaurant to restaurant pleading for food. Doors were slammed in my face. The humiliation was unbearable. Finally, starved and ashamed, I stretched out on a park bench, closed my eyes and went to sleep, thinking this is where I'm going to die. I don't know how long I had been sleeping, but then a man tapped me on the shoulder. I had never seen him before, and he didn't know who I was, but he sat down next to me and listened to my story. He cared about me, and he encouraged me to come back to his home, change my clothes, and contact the only people who still cared for me, my parents. I thought to myself, how could I use them like this? For as long as I could remember, I had treated them more like my worst enemy than my parents. I showed them no respect, and I refused to include them in any part of my life. And now that I needed them, I should use them? I felt remorseful and ashamed about my entire existence, but I left with no other choice. I decided to write them a letter. I sat down and tried to write. Tears flooded my vision and stained my words. I poured out my soul to them and related the entire chain of events that had transpired since we last spoke. I imagined them reading the letter and even though I knew they loved me, I was uncertain what their reaction would be. After all, I'm sure I had caused them an enormous amount of pain and frustration. I told them that I needed them in the worst way but that I didn't have the courage to ask them in person to take me back. What if they refused to have anything to do with me? I knew it was cowardly of me, but I had no choice. This was my last resort. So instead, I asked them for a favor. I informed them of the exact train that would be bringing me back home. Approximately 50 yards from the train stop, there's a large oak tree. If they found it within themselves to forgive me for, for my past sins, they should hang a small white flag on one of the branches of the tree. And if not, then I'll just stay on the train and continue on to the next step. Jason was spent. He had just bared his soul to this complete and total stranger on the train. But he had no choice because the stop was just ahead and he didn't have the courage to look and see if the flag was there. Jack held what was now a little scared boy close to him. He had cried throughout the story and was anxious to do what he could. The train slowed and the stop was near. Jason put his head between his knees and was nearly shaking with fear and apprehension. 100 yards, 75 yards, 50. Jack looked out the window. The train had almost stopped completely. The sound of its screeching wheels was growing louder. Jason looked up, his eyes red, his face white. So tell me, what do you see? Jack stared at Jason and smiled. The entire tree was covered in white cloth. Jason stood up, 
hugged his friend and walked toward the exit of the train, standing there with tears in their eyes were his loving parents. At first he hesitated, but then he ran into his parents' arms and held them closer than he ever had before. His mother and father too held their broken son close and whispered into his ears, welcome home, son, welcome home. <sighs> so friends, I hear this story because it's a reminder that the conversation about the afterlife can be an emotional one. And we are a tradition of forgiveness. We are a tradition of forgiveness. Not as we say, turn the other cheek, but one where we can return to God, so to speak, in forgiveness. One where we can return home after a long broken journey. And we can expect at the end of that train ride that there will be cloth and white welcoming, welcoming us home. Friends, Rabbi Steinzoltz of Blessed Memory, he asks why Adam and Eve, after they ate from the Eitz Hadat Tovarah, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and having spent Shabbat in the garden before being expelled from the Garden of Eden, why didn't they just run and eat from the other tree, the Eitz Chayim, the tree of eternal life? Because there's two trees there, right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. After all, they could have re reversed the decree of mortality by just eating from the tree of eternal life. Rabbi Steinzoltz responds that once we have das, once we have knowledge, sometimes we become too complicated and we miss the simple truths. Friends, we become a lot smarter in our lives, most of us at least, I think, a little bit wiser through experience and through learning. And sometimes we're so good at learning the complex truths that it becomes harder for us to embrace the simple truths, the power of love, the power of faith, the power of belief, even while we hold such complex truths. And I think one of those most simple truths is the idea what fundamentally makes us human is our soul. Is our soul, that's who we are, is our soul. Not our body, but our soul. We can spend all the money we want on diets and on changing our look and trying to look more attractive this way and that. But at the end of the day, the true self is what is not physically seen. It says in the Zohar, one who has eyes, referring to the soul's eyes, looks at the inner nature of things. One who is missing the capacity of the eyes sees only the royal garments, i.e. the external decorative. One says, well, where is God in this world? I don't see any divinity in this world. They're looking with the eye of the body. But if we look with the eye of the soul, we can see much deeper. And this is why, friends, that the neuroscientists cannot locate consciousness. With all the advancements of neuroscience, there's no way to locate consciousness. Not in the brain, not anywhere else, of course, but not in the brain. And thus, there's a deeply rational probability that souls are immortal. The part that makes us human, our human consciousness that can't be located in the body is itself in a mortal dimension. Why would someone think when the body dies 
that the immortal dimension of the self also dies. But friends, here I want to remind us that we don't die once, we die five times. We die when we stop living life to the fullest. That's our first death. We die a second death at the physical body's death, the cessation of the heartbeat or the death of the brainstem. We die a third death at that moment we see the body lowered into the earth where we have stood graveside for a loved one and we experience that death that feels final because we see that body being lowered into the earth. But that's only the third death. The fourth death is the last time someone's name is uttered in the world. That's to say by uttering someone's name, we keep them alive in a sense. And the fifth and final death is when whatever impact someone had in the world dissipates as if they had never existed at all. But as long as our good deeds and our impact continue to live, it's as if we are still living. Friends, there's a story about a man who was very poor and so his wife sent him away to go to work. And so he got on a boat and left the island and traveled a long way across the world. And he finally landed on a new island and he got there and he couldn't believe it. There were rubies all over the island. So he filled his bags with all the rubies and he went and bought more bags and he filled those bags with rubies. So this is unbelievable. I'm going to go home and our family's going to be rich and taken care of. And on his way out, he went to buy a drink. He said, oh, here's a ruby for the drink. And the shopkeeper said, a ruby? A ruby is valueless here. They're everywhere. We don't want your ruby. You can't buy a drink with a ruby. So he said, well, what's your currency? And the shopkeeper said, wax candles. Wax candles. Quickly, he emptied all the rubies out of the bag. Emptied all the rubies out of the bag and went and worked for years to accumulate as many wax candles as he could. Proud of himself, he got back on the ship and sailed back home with bags full of wax candles. He said, honey, honey, you won't believe it. Look at all the wax candles I've accumulated. She says, you fool. You fool, you left our family for years and you came back with wax candles? This is valueless. And he had realized that we can spend a life in search of a currency that at the end of the day is valueless. We can invest in a financial 401k and never in the soul's 401k. We can invest in the concrete of the wax candle, but something ultimately that converts into nothingness. And that's the message of Abraham, the first Jew, when he smashes his father's idols. What does he do? He goes in and he sees idols everywhere and he breaks the statues. He says, here's the birth of monotheism. We don't pray to statues. Now, he might look like a religious fundamentalist, breaking down someone else's religious faith. But there's an alternative read here, which is to say that success in Judaism is much richer it is the journey, it is the destination, it is internal, based on our sense of purpose, rather than external. We need to smash the idols, the external measures that tells us what true success is. What he is teaching is, if I'm going to be the first Jew, our message for the world is, our success will never be our riches. Our success will be an, an internal measure, not an external measure. And that's why, friends, whenever we see, as the rabbis teach, if you've ever seen a baby be born, 
You know, what are they doing with their hands? Their hands are clenched tight. But if you've ever been with someone when they die, what are their hands doing? Wide open. A baby comes into the world, has no idea they need anybody at all. I'll take care of myself. And when everyone dies, they know they are radically dependent on other people with their hands wide open. And that's why, friends, what we're trying to do here is to remember that we have to zoom out. That spiritual life and consciousness of the afterlife is about zooming out to the bigger picture. We live life zoomed into the micro. And in some cases, that's very helpful and important. But once again, how do you say truth in Hebrew? Emet. How do you say lie in Hebrew or false? Sheker. How is that positioned in the Aleph Bet? Emet is spaced out. Aleph in the beginning, Mem in the middle, tough at the end. When you zoom out to truth, when you zoom out, you get full truth. But Sheker, Shin Kuf Resh, right next to each other in the Aleph Bet. The closer zoomed in you are, you get lies. When you zoom out to a bigger picture, the consciousness of soul, right? If you live in the body, you see lies. If you zoom out to the perspective of soul, you can see a deeper truth. The Chachma Nisara, the hidden wisdom of reality that comes from the Chiyut, the vital life force that sustains us. And that's why E.M. Forster famously said, death destroys a person, but the idea of death saves a person. Death destroys a person, but the idea of death saves a person. The redemptive notion of zooming out to what is the purpose of my life, right? As Brooks wrote about building off Soloveitchik, that we don't live by, we don't live by resume virtues, but by eulogy virtues. Who wants at their eulogy someone to read off their resume? Oh, this guy built this business. He was very effective at business models. Uh, this one was extremely effective at this, this procedure in, in law and medicine. Okay, that's, that's a part of what we do in the world. But the, but the resume, but the eulogy virtues are the things that we lived most deeply by, the forms of kindness that no one saw, the deepest truths we lived by when we were alone, the things that animated our life beyond just formal career, as important as that is. Alan Patone wrote, when I shall die, which I certainly intend to do, I will be asked by the big judge, where are your wounds? When I say I haven't any wounds, I will be asked, was there nothing worth fighting for? And that is a question I will not want to have to answer. And so friends, who do we need to become? Who do we need to become in our lives to be worthy of eternal life? Who do we have to become to be worthy of living this eternal soulful existence? Well, it's told in a children's story, but sometimes children's stories tell the deepest truths. Zushia was stressed at the end of life. Ugh. I'm only Zushya. I was never Moshe. Moshe got to encounter God. Oh, I was only Zushya. I was never Avraham. I didn't go out and change the world. I was just this little guy, Zushya. And he says the question, and his friend said, the question at the gates of heaven will not be, why weren't you like Moses? Or why weren't you like Avraham or Sarah or Esther? The question will be, why weren't you more like Zushya? 
that each, each soul, while it is godly and universalistic, each soul in Kabbalistic thought is also unique. Every soul has its own unique soul potential. As Viktor Frank Frankl famously says, the question is not, what is the purpose of life? But what is the purpose of your life? What is the gift of your soul? What is the calling that only you have been placed in the world to answer? What is the role that you are in that is uniquely for you? We are taught to be bandwagoners. We are taught to join this political bandwagon or that one. We're taught to show up in masses. But in fact, what makes us unique is what is the unique call of our own souls. So friends, with that note, I wanna look at our concluding sources together um, to, to frame a little bit more of the ideas of how in Jewish thought, the afterlife is taken for granted. It is taken for granted. And while it's taken for granted, there is such a huge range of what this idea looks like from the Bible, from the Talmud, from the Zohar, from the later rabbis, from creative literature, from the rationalist philosophers through the mystics. And we will see those, that range of ideas. So we see here in Ketubot, in the Talmud, based on a passage in Isaiah, that says, and spirit to them that work therein. Teaches, says, Rav Yirmiyahu ben Abba, in the name of Rav Yochanan, whoever walks four cubits in the land of Israel is assured of a place in the world to come. Now, according to Rav Elazar, would not the righteous outside the, outside the land be revived? Rav Eli replied, they will be revived by rolling to the land of Israel. Oh, now a practical question. Rav Abba Salah the Great demurred, will not the rolling be painful? They're going to roll around the world? Abaye replies, cavities or holes will be made for them underground. I, th I think there's a little bit of humor here as well. They say, wait a minute. If we all need to get back to the land of Israel, how are we going to get there? They said, don't worry, there's some tunnels underground. Okay, most of the tunnels, uh, the IDF is working on closing right now, but these are holy tunnels. These are holy tunnels. And, um, uh, and so we see here that although our, uh, unfortunately, our primary orientation towards Israel these days is political, um, of course, there's a deeply spiritual relationship to, to the land itself, as we see here in relationship to death as well. The mitzvah to walk in the land and the mitzvah to return to the land. That's why many, even if they're buried in the diaspora, have sand from the land sprinkled upon them. Let's go to the Talmud of Brachot. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai fell ill, his disciples went in to visit him. When he saw them, he began to cry. His disciples said to him, Lamp of Israel, pillar of the right hand, mighty hammer, why do you cry? He replied, If I were being taken today before a human king who is here today and tomorrow in the grave, whose anger, if he is angry with me, does not last forever, who, if he imprisons me, does not imprison me forever, and who, if he puts me to death, does not put me to everlasting death, and whom I can persuade with words of bribe and money, even so I would weep. Now that I'm being taken before the supreme king of kings, the holy one, be blessed, who lives and endures forever and ever, whose anger, if God is angry with me, is an everlasting anger, who, if God imprisons me, imprisons me forever, who, if God puts me to death, puts me to death forever, and whom I cannot persuade with words of bribe, with money, nay more, 
when there are two ways before me, one land leading to paradise and the other to Gehenna, to hell, I do, purgatory, I do not know by which I shall be taken. Shall I not cry? They said to him, Master, bless us. He said to them, May it be God's will that the fear of heaven shall be upon you, my students, like the fear of flesh and blood. His disciples said to him, Is that all? He said to them, If only you can attain this, you can see how important this is. For when a man, when a person wants to commit a transgression, they say, I hope no person will see me. Heaven is also for the righteous. Ah, so sorry, excuse, excuse, pause there. This is the next source. So friends, what, what, he, what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai gives the blessing to his students when he's afraid of his own death, understanding that there are consequences to his life, he says the, blessing, the deepest blessing to his students for a life of virtue is be as afraid, have as much awe for God as you do of people. Imagine this. What is the, perhaps the most powerful public motivator is shame, being ashamed publicly, right? Being ashamed publicly, right? And yet, what are we willing to do in, before the eyes of God, so to speak? And so I know it's very unpopular for the modern person to think of God as an angry God, or God as someone who punishes, or God as someone who um, uh, uh, judges. This is an unpopular modern idea. Nonetheless, um, it is so embedded in our tradition, this idea that we should live, that part of what is essential to a moral consciousness is the idea that we are accountable for our actions and that everything we do is seen. Everything we do is seen. Now, friends, I want to remind us in this source that's on the bottom of this slide that just like Muslims think the world should be Muslim. Okay, maybe there's some progressive Muslims that don't, but any traditional Muslim believes the world needs to accept Allah to be entered into paradise. So too, some progressive Christians have, a, have an alternative read, but any traditional Christian, the high bulk, we're talking over a billion Muslims in the world, over a billion Christians in the world, believe the only path to heaven is through Christ. The world needs to convert to Jesus. Again, there's some progressive Christians who have moved away from such a thing. The Catholic Church in doing tshuva for the Holocaust denounced this idea. And the Catholic Church in doing repentance for the blood on the hands of the Catholic Church in the Holocaust said, we believe Judaism is a valid path to God. This is a huge, this is a huge, uh, uh, this is a huge development. But Judaism doesn't say anything like this, like the other two monotheistic faiths in their tr most traditional form. Judaism says, all decent people have, can have a pathway. Here's what it says directly in the Tosefta, in the rabbis. Heaven is also for the righteous Gentiles. The righteous among the nations of the world will have a share in the world to come. This is a very important idea about Judaism, that Judaism is particularistic. It is about Jews. Jews should do holidays. Jews should take care of Jews. Jews should um, support Israel. Jews should... Jews should engage in righteous activities in the world. But Judaism is also fundamentally universalistic, caring for all humanity, caring for all people, and also understanding that we don't proselytize. We don't think Judaism is the only pathway, as other religions often believe, that Judaism believes righteous Gentiles, just like righteous Jews, have a pathway. And this is a very important insight that Judaism offers to the world. Okay, let's keep going. 
a topsy-turvy world. Listen to this Talmudic passage as Rabbi Angel shares it from the Talmud of Pesachim. The Talmud relates the story of the seeming death of a son of Yehoshua ben Levi. Obviously, the family was mourning the passing of such a promising and learned young man. But then the son was somehow revived, and the joy was great. Rabbi Yehoshua realized, though, that his son had just had an amazing experience, another case of dying and coming back, right? As we talked about last session, he had died and thus had experienced life after death, the Talmud records. And yet he was now alive and could describe what he had seen while he was in the next world. What did you see there? The rabbi asked his son. I saw a topsy-turvy world. Those who are great here are small there. Those who are small here are great there. Rabbi Yehoshua told his son, you have seen the world in its genuine clarity. No, my son, he was saying, you did not see an inverted world. You saw true reality. In this world, humans often misjudge who is actually great or insignificant, powerful or weak. But these misjudgments are rectified in the next world, in the true world. In fact, friends, many people spend their whole life seeking popularity. More likes on social media, more attention, more uh, uh, awards, a sense of external achievement, right? But as we see in the next world, as we related in the previous passage, it's an upside down world that those who are seen as great in this world, it's a very different measure. And those who were humble and quiet and perhaps not celebrated, their, their heroism was of a different nature, are people who are in fact celebrated. And this once again, is the value of a heaven-based consciousness, a heaven-based moral consciousness to ask ourselves, to ask ourselves, what's my true measure of, of a successful life, of a life worth living? And here, once again, as we'll see in our next slide, we are not just our bodies. It says here in the Zohar, when, a, when man was created, what is written concerning him? You have clothed me with skin and flesh, it says in Eov and Job. He asks, if so, what is man in his essence? And he answers, if you think that a person is nothing more than skin, flesh, bones, and sinews, this is not so, for certainly man is but his soul. And skin, flesh, bones, and sinews area is only the clothing. These are the implements of, of man and not man himself. And when humans pass away, they divest themselves of all the implements they wore. So friends, here I'm now going to make a pivot to another idea. We've talked a lot. We started our three sessions with skepticism around atheism, around if I can't see an afterlife, why would I believe it? If I can't see a God, why would I believe it? There's no actual proofs. We moved into different theologies that have different pictures of what an afterlife would look like and who would go there. We talked about the tzaddikim, how the tzaddikim ascend immediately, and the rashayim, how the, the evil ones descend immediately, and the benonim, the most common type, that goes through a purgatory in order to be cleansed and then return, and then return. But then I promised we would come back to Gilgul. But not only Gilgul, but Ibor. Gilgul is reincarnation, 
And Ebor is the notion of soul impregnation, to impregnate the soul. So here we see in our next slide, found, uh, as Shalom explains in the Zohar, the notion of Ebor, the migration of souls. Not all migrating souls enter the new body at the moment of conception or of birth. Sometimes at special moments during the course of one's life, a person receives a second soul that is, so to speak, impregnated with their own soul. Oh, we think of one soul in the body, multiple souls in one body. This additional soul is not linked to one's psychophysical so, psycho organism from birth, and nor does it partake in its development, but it can accompany them until their death or may leave them earlier. According to the Zohar, the souls of certain pious figures in the Bible were impregnated with the deceased souls of other righteous people from the past at decisive moments in their lives. Hence, the soul of Yehuda entered into that of Boa, while those of Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu, entered that of Pinchas. So friends, this is a, also a huge idea that there is actually, there's, a, there's an opposite idea too. Here we see the idea of multiple souls within the self. We know this idea on Shabbat already, that the Meshama Yetera, we live with one soul during the week, and on soul we get an, on Shabbat we get an extra soul, an extra form of spiritual consciousness. But here now we see the idea that you ever heard of multiple identity? I mean, go back to like Frederick Douglass's idea of am I am I a uh, am I a am I a Negro or am I am I a, an American, right? Like, what am I? Or go back to the idea, am I a Jew or am I an American? Like, am I, people who have split identities in terms of who they are. Now imagine the idea of you have multiple souls within you that have lived prior lives. And I said, there's a conflicting idea. The conflicting idea is only having a partial soul. How does this emerge? How many, how many souls were at Har Sinai? We just had Shavuot this last weekend. How many souls were there? Ah, the Torah says 600,000 men between ages 20 to 60. And 3 million people altogether, when you include boys under 20, men over 60, and all girls and women. All right, okay, that's, that's, that's using a gender binary, but that's okay, we get, we get the point here. 3 million souls at Sinai. How many Jews are in the world today? Well, we just had a Pew study. What did we end up with? I don't know, 13, 14, 15, 16. Before the Holocaust, there were 18 million. Of course, we lost six. We lost one third of the Jews in the Holocaust, right? So what is the, wait a minute, friends, what's going on here? If there's only 3 million Jewish souls in the world, how can there be 13, 14, 15, 15 million Jews today? The souls became fractured, the Kabbalah explains. In fact, we might have only a partial soul in us, right? Remember the idea of a soulmate? What does it mean to meet a soulmate, a best friend, a life partner, maybe the person you're still looking for, your besheret, you're, you are meeting someone who has another part completing your soul in a literal sense for the Kabbalah, right? And it might not have to be this perfect match idea. In a chavruta as well, when two souls connect, the fire of these souls creates a flame that's where the sum is greater than its own parts. So here, friends, we see Ebor, the idea that multiple souls are within oneself, and we see the fragmentation of souls, that only partial souls are within the self. Okay, here's the last source I'm going to look at, because I, I want to get the question and answers. Okay. 
Um, not answers, questions and reflections, let's call it. I have no answers. Okay, so uh, here, here's the last Talmudic passage. Bringing joy. It says here in the Talmud of Ta'anit, these two are destined for the world to come. Rav Broca went up to them and he said to them, you get a face in heaven. Who are you? What do you do? I want to be like you. They said to him, we're comedians and we go to cure up people who are depressed. Additionally, we, whenever we see two people involved in, a fight, involved in a fight, we strive hard to make peace between them. Right? I think the Talmud is telling a little bit of a joke, but only a little bit. They're saying, who's the people who get a, a space in the world to come? It's, it's the comedians, right? Because they did something very beautiful. They made people laugh. Of course, they're dealing with comedians who didn't mock people and break down people. The majority of comedy these days, unfortunately, is trying to break someone down, right? But really good comedy, which is about lifting up, which is about bringing joy uh, to people. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, the Talmud says, has a space in the world to come. That it is not only about living a spiritual life or a life of moral virtue, it is also about this idea of humor, living with joy, and helping to share joy, helping to make people laugh, helping to bring shalom into the world, peace into the world. You may have heard, we are missing some peace in the world. You may have heard, I don't know. I don't know if you've checked the news in the last 24 hours, the last week, the last year, in America, in the Middle East, we could use a little peace in the world. And if you do something to help bring peace into the world, this is also a beautiful thing. That is why we light Shabbat candles. We light Shabbat candles for Shalom Bayit, peace in the home. And then, of course, all of Judaism starts in the home and then goes beyond. So, friends, I'm going to, uh, I'm debating, I'm debating whether to share my final story now or take uh, some reflections and then share it. You know what? Let's do that. I'll share the closing story for the end. Let's take some comments and questions on anything you're thinking about. Um, and then I'll and then I'll close with a with a story in our last few minutes. Okay, please feel free to unmute yourself. I'll take a few of you at once, if that's okay. The idea of Gilgulim, which has always really interested me, um, are, are there is there much rabbinic source on Gilgulim? Are there people? Do do we have any evidence that people were Gilgulim? Can the Gilgul also be, um, can you come back as a pet? Can you come back as a cat or a dog? Like to- Great, Great question, Lauren. Question. Okay, so the main thinkers here are Rav Sagi Nahor from the Sefer Bahir, the Ramban, known as Nachmanlis, Rabbeinu Bachaya, and Rav Chaim Vital. Now, so let's go through each of the three points that, the, that these three want to make. Rav Sagi Nahor from the Sefer Bahir wants to say, that Gilgulim, reincarnation, solves the problem of theodicy. He says, why do the, now I'm not trying to say this is a knockout punch uh, of a proof, but he says um, uh, that uh, why do the righteous suffer in this world? Because of sins from their past uh, incarnation. Why do the evil prosper in this world? Because of the virtues of their past incarnation. He tries to resolve the problems of theodicy, why the good suffer and the righteous uh, and, and the wicked prosper, by, say, but through the lens of, of um, Gilguli. The second is through this idea of the Ramban and Rabbeinu Bahaya, who want to explain that we 
I, get, remember my remember my example last time with purgatory. A child shows up at home who's all dirty, and the mother doesn't want to let the dirty child into the house because the child has to be hosed down first. You have to be cleaned, so the soul has to be cleansed. So too, they say the soul needs to complete the mitzvot, and you need multiple lives to achieve that. You can't do all the mitzvot in your life, right? Because each of us is positioned. Like my my burden is too heavy in my work. My burden is too heavy with my family. My burden is too heavy in my own ideology, right? I can't do it all. So I'm going to take a few lives to get there. So they explain, you're going to get multiple chances. This is part of God's mercy. You don't get judged on one life. You get multiple, multiple attempts to get there. God wants us to return home. And to return home, you're going to get all the chances you need, right? And then the third position coming from Rav Chaim Vital is, is similar to the second, but rather than based on just the mitzvot, it is about the potential to seek growth and perfection and actualization. The idea that, um, that, um, uh, um, that in each life, we achieve something beautiful and we miss something else. Some of us are lovers of Jews and not lovers of humanity. Some of us are lovers of humanity and not lovers of Jews. Some of us love humans, but not animals. Some of us love animals and not humans. Fill in the blank, right? We all have our shadows and our and our black and our dark spaces of where we can't fulfill our potential. So we get more chances. Now, let me show you a fascinating idea from the Torah. And forgive me if I lose you here. This is a little bit of uh, of of, uh, of intricacy in the parsha. If you're not familiar with it, there's a concept called yibum. I don't know what I mean by yibum. Okay, here's what here's biblical justice. There is a a young woman married to a young man, and he dies, and she never had a baby. So what happens to her? Anybody? What happens to her? She has to marry a sibling to have a child in the name of her first husband. Right. The man who dies, yeah, Eileen was going to say that too. The man yeah. who dies, Eileen, go ahead. Um, if the man dies with a brother, yeah, great, exactly. She yeah, must so marry correct. a brother. Amazing. So yeah, so if the woman dies and never had a baby and her, excuse me, and her husband dies, she never had a baby, his brother needs to marry her, okay? Now, if he doesn't want to do that, then he needs to be embarrassed for not taking care of her. And he asks, and she comes and sits in his shoe. In fact, my wife's, my wife's uh, uh, family member, uh, about 75 years ago, had to do this. Spits in the shoe. Um, but otherwise, he needs to marry her. Okay, now let's bracket all the theology here and all. But but the concept there in the Kabbalah, why does he have to marry her? Because Yibum, him marrying her, will bring his brother's soul back in, into life. The child that is born of that marriage brings his brother back into the world. And that's his, that his, is his responsibility to his brother to take care of his widow and to bring his own soul back into the world. So that is another case of how they think of reincarnation. Okay, now one last uh, point uh, based on your question there, Lauren. Yes, we do see some sources that human souls go into, into animal bodies. We do see the idea. Um, by the way, I, I was waiting for someone to ask, does my dog get a space in the world to come? We also see that idea that animals also uh, have souls in Jewish thought, lower, a lower level of soul to be sure, but nonetheless a soul, right? Remember there's five layers of soul. 
and they have this they have this uh, uh, this this nefesh this life force in them. And this idea of, I loved my dog. Will my dog be with me? Yeah, well, maybe the dog's not going to look like, uh, um, what was it, Lassie. Not gonna, is that the name, Lassie? <laughs> right, whatever you thought, right? But this presence, this joyful presence um, can be with us. And so, yes, there can be pets in the next world. So too, in, in, in the reincarnation theology, the notion of humans returning through a lower form of life also, also, also possible. Okay, let's hear from someone else. Thank you, Lauren. Oh. Yes, yes, I, Andrea. So um, I wanted to share a source and then I have a question. Um, thank you, Shmuel, you've done a great job of um, touching on the main points. I, I studied in, with a Hebrew a few years ago, Simcha Paul Raphael's Jewish views of the afterlife. So I would encourage people to pick that up and a lot of this evolution of the history about the soul is in there. But I have a question that I've been turning over for years. You know, in our Hever, we talk about in the Tahara room, there's the Hevra and God and the soul. And again and again, we pray that, you know, in Elohim, uh, the Shema, the soul will leave us. We talk about the soul as if it's a thing, an entity. And even sometimes we do a keeper rain to pray that we can continue to pray for atonement afterwards. But it has another dimension. It's in the spiritual dimension. How do you reconcile the idea that it's a thing? It's like we, like we want to make God a person separate from us. This thing, but if it exists in a spiritual dimension, how do you integrate the two? Amazing, amazing. This is our biggest blind spot as humans because we only know how to think through the brain and how to experience physical re reality. Unless you're engaged in some transcendental experiences where you can feel out-of-body experiences, we, can, we only think of, well, I can't touch this soul. I can't see it. Where is this? Where is this? Uh, this this spatial uh, temporal reality, and yet um, you're exactly right, Andrew. This idea um, of the soul as this form of existence—it's almost like the wind, the wind we feel but can't grasp exactly, the love that we feel but we can't hold on to or point to. It's so deeply known. It's so deeply known that it's not even it's not even able to be seen. It's like you've seen that cartoon before of two fish swimming. And one fish saying, uh, um, and one fish saying, "Oh, isn't the water so so pleasant today?" And the other fish says, "What's water? Right? What's water? Because you're so immersed in a reality that we don't even know the reality we're immersed in, right?" And so now let me share Maimonides' view here on the soul, because this is really important. And I'm sorry I didn't get to share this yet. I went a little bit more on the mystical side. Maimonides goes the opposite way. Now, let me preface this with all my love for the Rambam, for, for Maimonides, the greatest philosopher in Jewish tradition, by saying he was an intellectual snob. He was an intellectual snob. And this case will, 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 will demonstrate that. He, he, most Jewish thinkers say, it's olam haba, reward of the next life is about living a life of virtue. For Rambam, it's not. It's if you got it intellectually right or not. You might've been a nice person, but if your soul did not attach to truth, nothing will exist of your soul. If you never cultivated a soul, your body dies and there's nothing left of you. If you invested in your soul and attached it to truth, then what you cultivated will continue to exist eternally. So for Maimonides, he really understands the notion of a soul as an intellectual capacity that's not cognitive, but is transcendental about devekut, 
clinging one's existence to the highest form of truth, of reality, of existence. And if you spent your time doing that, then your soul will continue. And if you were a nice person, but you didn't do that, nothing's it's not that you're going to be punished. It's that you don't have this soul. You never invested in it. There's nothing left. So that's kind of this alternative view that's over, over there. Thank you, Andrea, for that. Yeah, for that great question. Let's hear from someone else here, please. May I ask just a quick question? Um, I, I didn't get to do the first two sessions because um, I was being a caregiver. Is there some way that we can reaccess those? Yes, absolutely. If you go to the, the to vbmtorah.org or the valleybeatmadrash.org and you uh -huh. go to the learning library page, um, you will not only find the first two sessions, but you can use the search bar to find a range of, of sessions we've had on questions of afterlife. We've had panel discussions on it. We've had lectures on it and classes on it, including Simcha Raphael, who was mentioned. Um, his book also does a, a full survey of such ideas. So yes, you can very easily find it in podcast form or in video, video form. If you have any trouble, just email us at learn at valleybatemadrash.org and we'll send it to you. Also, as I said, it's, we can only scratch the surface in three sessions. I would love next year to continue with a deeper lens. What would be helpful is if you sent back to us um, a critical view. I loved learning about X. I really learned, wanted to learn more about Y and Z. You know, we will take notes on that. We have the potential to continue if there is if there is interest because um, there there's literally thousands and thousands of ideas to share. So, anyways, is that helpful, Candy? Oh, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, yes, Michael. Do the rabbis and looking into the soul and afterlife is the is that the reason that we need to have a moral life and follow Torah in this life, or is it that this is how we should live this life and, and what comes after is maybe a bonus, but that's not the, the main reason we need to live a moral life now. Great question, Michael. Great, great question. So um, um, if you've ever met someone with completely pure motives, please introduce me to them. I would love to meet them um, because what the rabbis teach is no doubt doing something with the right motives is much better than doing something with the wrong motives. But if given the choice of having a small impact with good motives or a huge impact with wrong motives, generally the thrust in Jewish ethics is the latter, right? Let's say a person wants to give so much of their tzedakah because they really want their name all over the building, but they help so many people. Who cares if they wanted their name in the building? Look how many people they helped. And someone else says, you know what? I'm going to give 1%. I'm going to give very little of what I've earned in my life, but I'm going to do it with the purest of heart. I really care. I really, really care. The rabbis generally prefer a deeper impact, understanding that humans are complex. And what they say in the Talmud is, shalolishma balishma. If you start something for the wrong motives and you keep doing it, your heart will follow the right action and you will come eventually to do it for the right motive. So keep doing it for the wrong motive. Don't worry about your heart. Keep doing the right thing. Your heart will follow. Your heart will follow. Now, I, ha I, I have a different interpretation of that line. Lolishma balishma. Mitokshi lolishma balishma. Ba doesn't mean sequential, but concomitant, which means there is nothing we do that only has pure motives or impure motives. Everything we do from human psychology 
has multiple human motivations, right? I might eat my challah on Friday night because it's a beautiful mitzvah to have to be a part of Jewish tradition and eat challah. I might also, because the challah tastes good, right? So too, one might make love with their spouse because they love them and they want to connect to them. And someone else might, at the same time, they might say, oh, this feels good, right? So too, someone might engage in Jewish learning because they want to challenge themselves to grow. And they also might say, I enjoy the social connection, right? It's okay. It's okay to have pure and, um, and so-called impure motives. Aristotle taught, Aristotle taught actually um, to that age-old question of, of, oh, can anything ever be altruistic? Because at the end of the day, you feel good when you do good. And so maybe you're doing it to feel good. And he says, no, no, the virtuous person should feel good when they do good. Something is wrong with the virtuous person if they don't feel good when doing good. If they feel good when they do bad, that wouldn't be a virtuous person. Feeling good should be aligned with doing good. So the fact that you feel good and you feel a reward when you do good is a sign of virtue, right? And so too, and so yes, in the ideal form, when we help another human, human being, we should do it for empathy, like you're, like you're hinting at, Michael. We should do it out of compassion, out of empathy. That's what we should strive for. Not, oh, I want a space in heaven, so I'm going to go help this person. That doesn't sound so wonderful, right? And at the same time, the rabbis teach, you know what? Be gentle with yourself. We are so frail and vulnerable as human beings. And if you want to do good things because you also want to feel good about yourself and you also want to feel like you have a space in the world to come, and you also want to feel connected to other people, like, that's okay too. Most importantly, just chase the good. Okay, David, I think you unmuted. No, okay, let's hear from one other person and then I'm gonna uh, offer a closing story. Yes, yes, uh, Susan. Mm -hmm. um, when, when you're talking about uh, chasing goodness, it reminds me of Psalm 23, uh, Tirdolf. Uh, goodness uh, is going to pursue me, uh, and and I just love that image of being pursued by goodness. Yes, I love that. I love that. In fact, um, I mean, the amazing thing is that you know Judaism teaches that if you chase happiness, it's like water in your hands. If you just chase happiness, it just falls through your hands. You can't grasp it. But when you chase goodness, you chase goodness. That that satisfaction, that happiness, pursues you. It chases you. And that's why, as one thinker once said, um, we should be like holy beggars. We, should, we shouldn't have people hunting us down to donate money. We shouldn't have people hunting us down to become volunteers. We should be chasing people to give to them. I'm chasing. I'm, I'm a holy beggar. I'm chasing you to give to you, right? We are pursuing it because that, that's what we have to do in our life. So friends, I'm going to close with this story. And I'm so grateful to have had this time with you. And this is a story I found called The Cab Ride I Will Never Forget. There was a time in my life 20 years ago when I was driving a cab for a living. It was a cowboy's life, a gambler's life, a life for someone who wanted no boss, constant movement, and the thrill of a dice roll every time a new passenger got into the cab. What I didn't count on when I took the job was that it was also a ministry. Because I drove the night shift, my cab became a rolling confessional. Passengers would climb in, sit behind me in total anonymity, and tell me of their lives. We were like strangers on a train, the passengers and I, 
hurtling through the night, revealing intimacies we would never have dreamed of sharing during the brighter light of day. I encountered people, people whose lives amazed me, ennobled me, made me laugh and made me cry. And none of those lives touched me more than that of a woman I picked up late on a warm August night. I was responding to a call from a small brick fourplex in a quiet part of town. I assumed I was being sent to pick, to pick up some partiers or someone who had just had a fight with a lover or someone going off to an early shift of some factory for the industrial part of town. And when I arrived at the address, the building was dark, except for a single light in a ground floor window. Under these circumstances, many drivers would honk once or twice, wait a short minute and drive away. Too many bad possibilities awaited a driver who went up to a darkened building at 2.30 in the morning. But I had seen too many people trapped in a life of poverty who depended on the cab as their only means of transportation. Unless a situation had a real whiff of danger, I always went to the door to find the passenger. It might, I reasoned, be someone who needs my assistance. Would I not want a driver to do the same if my mother or father had called for a cab? So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute answered a frail and elderly voice. I could hear the sound of something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman somewhere in her late 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like you might see in a costume shop or a Goodwill store or in a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The sound had been her dragging it across the floor. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car? She said, I'd like a few minutes alone. Then if you could come back and help me, I'm not very strong. I took the suitcase to the cab then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just wanna treat all my passengers the way I would want my mother treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. Her praise and appreciation were almost embarrassing. When we got into the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive me through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to the hospice. I looked into the rear view mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I should go there. He says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to go, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they had first been married. 
he had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she would have me slow down in front of a particular building or corner and would just sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. Without waiting for me, they opened the door and began assisting the woman. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. Perhaps she had phoned them right before we left. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase out of the, took the, took the small suitcase up to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. But you have to make a living, she answered. There's other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. There was nothing more to say. I squeezed her hand once, then walked out into the dim morning light. Behind me, I could hear the door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any other passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the remainder of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten into an angry driver or had gotten someone who was impatient at the end of their shift? What if I had refused to take the run or had honked once and driven away? What if I'd been in a foul mood and had refused to engage the woman in conversation? How many other moments like that had I missed or failed to grasp? Friends, there's not the healthy and the sick. There's the sick and the not yet sick. We're all on a pathway towards dying. We're all on a pathway of living. And we can hold each other gently in that journey of uncertainty, not knowing where we'll go in this life or after. And I just give us the blessing and I hope you'll give it back to me that whoever steps into our cab, we greet them with love knowing this might be their last ride. And pray that on our last ride, we're also greeted with such a loving presence. And that, friends, is the world we want to rebuild together. And in doing that, we will have not only rebuilt this world, but rebuilt the world we wish to ultimately be in. Thank you so much for joining this learning with me. It's been a great honor. And I look forward to continuing. I'm sorry for going over time. Have a great day.